Hi. Hi. Um, You're already I, I brandishing mean, a book with intent. This is you know a, what? I brought it for you because I knew as soon as I started talking about it, you would go, oh, I want to read that. It is a memoir. Uh, it's called Group by Christy Tate, How One Therapist and a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life. Oh. It's a memoir about a woman's experience doing group therapy. Oh, man. You're welcome. Give it to me right now. <laughs> it's Look, it was really interesting. It, it the takeaway for me was I never want to do group therapy, okay, well, even though it did. Tell me something that w- <laughs> would surprise me. I was just like, the idea of you in group therapy is actually one of the funniest thoughts it I've had so far today. So thank you. It sounded ex- group therapy My sounded Lee. extraordinarily confusing. I really hate being here. I resent having to be here. I'm not interested in any of you. <laughs> oh, I'd be interested in everyone else. I just wouldn't want to talk about myself and have to you know, bear my soul to a group of strangers. And also it all they... started when my mother forced me to do Highland dancing. <laughs> They're all um... – so she basically – she goes to see a therapist because she's feeling sort of sad and lonely and she's one of these people who feels like she needs to have a relationship and she's not been able to successfully build a relationship. She's, I guess, in her late 20s, early 30s. Right. Um, and so she has an eating disorder. She goes to see a therapist and he says you'd benefit from group therapy. Right. And so she she go, starts going to this group therapy once a week and then it becomes twice a week. And it's sort of just explores what happens when she starts sharing her problems with the group and starts doing what the therapist and the group encourage her to right, do. Right, so she buys in. She's not oh, taking the piss. She's no, buying, no, she she's, buys in. Yeah. She's, yeah, and she's, is she resistant to the idea at first? She's, I guess, feels a little bit confronted about just going and, and having yeah. to talk about really intimate stuff in front of strangers. And the, and the key thing that the therapist says is you must be absolutely truthful all the time and you have to, you know, just you can't sort of conceal things from the group. So yeah. the group will ask, you know, the most probing personal questions about, say, her sex life right. and, you know, she has to go into it or it starts off where she has to talk about her eating disorder which she has right. a lot of shame around and the she feels shame at telling people what she's eating because she's controlling heavily what she eats so right. she has you know for breakfast you know a lettuce leaf and some cottage cheese she eats the mm. same thing every day but then she binges on apples so in the evening she'll eat like eight apples or something and she feels this shame around the apples like it's a shameful secret and the therapist wants her to not feel shame around it so therefore he wants it to not be a secret right so he okay. her job is that she has to ring someone else in the group every single night and tell them how many apples she's eaten to try to take the power out of that secret. Wow, okay. Then there's someone else in the group she has to end up ringing every day for something. And so it sort of goes from there. And then she's as she's doing therapy, she has various relationships with people, some of which work and some of which don't, and all of them she has to bring to the group and debrief about them to the group. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's sort of like... It de- it definitely helps her the experience of being in group, but it's I found it almost like a horror novel, <laughs> <laughs> but a compelling one. Obviously, a compelling kept... horror novel for sure. Yeah, I kept reading it. It's very American. Yeah. Um, anyway, it was it definitely hooked me. Is group therapy as big a thing in Australia? It isn't really, is it? I mean, I don't know anyone who's ever done group. I therapy. mean, there's sort of AA and stuff. So that's yeah, I group. guess that's a form. So, of it, yeah, but but general group therapy, I've just never really heard of in I, Australia. I, I mean, I've heard of people say being in support groups for various things yeah. like um, family members of people who've committed suicide attending a support right. group. I don't yeah. think that's quite the same thing as group therapy. Um, God, there should be a musical called Group, right? <laughs> like that would be – oh. could this become a musical? Oh it's a little God. bit like a chorus line though, isn't it, where everyone's talking about their problems yeah, in a group I mean, of strangers. It's time for another one, I reckon. <laughs> um, it would make a good play. 
Get on it, sales. Get on it. I bet someone's already done it. I mentioned this to a friend the other night and he said he had done group therapy in London one time. Mm. And uh, I asked, you know, why had he gone? And he said he felt like he'd had a very boring life and that nothing exciting had ever really happened. And uh, so he went to group therapy just to find out what's wrong with me that nothing interesting ever happens to me. Wow, that's some... It's not probably the most colourful backstory no. that would be thrown out. We said when he got there, it was him and seven women and they all had hugely traumatic things that happened to them. And, and he so was just was, like, I haven't had enough trauma. He said he became, as the soul man, the centre of a lot of rage. <laughs> <laughs> How anyway, long was, did he go to this? This thing was like an intensive weekend thing. Oh, God. Yeah. So like primal yeah. scream at the man in the room I, I could have asked a lot more questions, but I didn't. I don't know the person that well, so I felt like I, I Can you I, bookmark and go back to it later? Maybe. <laughs> Does he listen to this podcast? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no identifying marks here. I'm just sharing a, a loose anecdote. Wow. Um, yeah. Anyway, that's very a, interesting. That's a pretty interesting reason to go along to group therapy, though. I, I, I found it. To, I, I don't have enough. I'm not going to lie. I went home and wrote it down in my journal for potential use. Oh no! <laughs> don't you think like going to group therapy because there's nothing sp- wrong with you and that makes you wonder what's wrong with you? I think your it's a really spiraling journal habit is like really unsettling and worrying to me. I just wonder if you know. I think we're all going to have some horrible revelations as we, you know, <laughs> as those get published after your untimely death on a scootering uh, accident. As you know, you've been tasked the first your first job to go around there and burn all of that crap. So oh, maybe I will, maybe I won't. Um, anyway, I, I think you'll like oh it. God, I, it I'm sounds really. I, I, when I was reading it, I was thinking, oh, this is up crabs, Ellie. I'm so ready for it. And also, yeah. it's got a um, endorsement from Lisa Tadeo, the uh, author of Three Women. So that's why the publisher sent it to me. Unrestrained because... memoir is a transporting experience and one of the more, most startlingly hopeful books I've ever read. Oh God! All right, I'm ready for that. <laughs> I've read a few good books in the last uh, few weeks. Yeah. I am. Um, have just um, interviewed Trent Dalton about his new book. And oh, yes, his eagerly awaited new book. Right, yeah, and it's called? it's called All Our Shimmering Skies. And, like, you know how the first book, one of the most extraordinary aspects of the first book for me, which, you know, nobody needs to be told about um, uh, Boy Swallows Universe, Universe um, is the extent to which it was based on his own mm. early life, you know, I'd – don't know Trent very well. We've met a couple of times, but um, I have always loved his magazine feature writing. And just the um, knowledge of how tough his early life was, was is just really fascinating and revelatory, I think, about his his techniques as a writer. Like he obviously started out very early in life as an observer, you know, a really close observer. And he has no, um, you know, he will look and handle people at a broken stage of their lives in a really generous way, I think, probably because of um, his own struggles in early life. And I think that that's an amazing quality in an observer and in a writer. So this book is completely different from the first one in that the first one is set in kind of, you know, the mean streets of suburban Brisbane. Brackenridge. Drug dealers. Yeah, Brackenridge, Yeah, and, you know, um, people in and out of jail, drug dealers. This one is set in 1942 in Darwin um, at the time of the Japanese bombing raids. And his characters are just 
sort of fanciful characters. You know, the protagonist of the story is this 12-year-old girl called Molly. She's a grave digger. She lives in a cemetery with her awful, awful um, father and uncle who are terrible drunks, abusive, shocking. Um, her mother dies very early in the book and she is bereft um, and she thinks that her family or has been told that her family is um, the subject of a curse because her grandfather took some gold that he was shown by this um, quite um, elusive Indigenous guy called Longcoat Bob who takes on this sort of absolutely mythical role over the course of the book. Anyway, the bombs come. She thinks this is another part of the curse and she goes on the run um, in the kind of um, Northern Territory rainforest wilderness with this um, uh, damaged nightclub singer woman called Greta uh, and they are joined <laughs> by a guy called Yukio, who's a Japanese bomber pilot who has um, flown away from the site of the bombing and landed, parachuted out into the wilderness. And so anyway, there's a lot of kind of, there's a magic realist kind of quality to the writing, which is like not usually my favourite thing. So I kind of edged into it thinking, okay, Trent, what's going on here? <laughs> um, but the fascinating thing is despite the completely different setting and the whole thing is like a it's like a 450 page long acknowledgement of country like the 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 scenery and the land almost plays the role of a character it's so beautifully and closely observed and described that it is I mean, it's quite lyrical and beautiful to read. So the big question will be, because Boy Swallows Universe was such a popular book, if you liked Boy Swallows Universe, are you going to like this book? Yep. Okay. Yep, right. totally. It's weird because it's the settings and the characters are all completely different, but the themes are actually quite similar, you know. Right. And when I was talking to Trent um, about the book, he said, oh, yeah, it's totally different. But, you know, actually once you read through it, you're like, oh, this is Trent Dalton sorting out his bullshit once again. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved him for saying that because it is about like once again you've got this child character who is huge of heart, right, hugely damaged, is biffed about by life to an almost comedic degree, like some of the things that happened to this girl and actually Trent was saying that there's a particular scene which is really tough and he said that his wife read it and like was reading it in bed and turned around and said, what's wrong with you? Like <laughs> why are you doing this to this poor girl? And it's almost as though he's got to kind of smash up these characters to the point where you think the human spirit cannot endure any more of this just to demonstrate the capacity to find light and hope, you know, in these dark situations. And the, I mean, I cried at the end of the book. It is, it is a redemption story and it is, it's magical. Like it's, people are going to love it, I think. And I think it also, I mean, he wrote it before COVID happened. Oh. But it does have this incredible through line about, just about values and what's important and um, how 
terrible situations, you know, can be fought through and how you can put broken things back together, you know. Like it's, yeah, he's quite um, an amazing character himself, Trent, I think. Like he's, he's got a great and foolhardy sometimes sense of optimism and this patience with misfortune and brokenness and that's a beautiful thing in that man I think as a writer and as a person. Um, I just read something that's quite dark but I think um, it's not about redemption or trying to find um, good in um, you know badness. Mm. Um, it was the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction this year. Um, it is called The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead who's an African-American writer. Um, it's it's fiction, but it's it's fiction that's you know based on something that really happened, mm. and then it's been fictionalized. So he started writing this book um, when he read a story in the Tampa Bay Times about archaeology students at the University of South Florida. They were digging up and trying to identify the remains of students who had been tortured, raped, and mutilated, and then buried in a secret graveyard. Sorry, which um, institution is this? It was a state-run um, sort of, I guess, reform school run Jesus. for boys in a panhandle town in Florida. And that reform school only closed in 2011. Um, it had been running for more than 100 years. And oh, so God. it was just the most um, – and, of course, you know, there were there were white students there, but it was heavily the black student population that were tortured and mutilated. So these archaeology students so far, um, or at the time of, you know, when this book came out, more than 80 bodies had been dug up in this <gasps> secret graveyard. More than 80 kids had been um, murdered. So he has taken this account and fictionalised it as the Nickel Academy. That's why the book's called The Nickel mm. Boys. And he follows the tale of um, sort of what there's one, I guess, central character, Elwood, and then there's another um, character, Tucker, that he sort of follows through. And it's just that thing of, um, as the New York Times says in its piece about it, there's no Atticus Finch writing to the rescue mm. here. There's no, there's no character that's got a heart of gold underneath mm. their, you know, um, evil. And it's also like... I think this is part of American American history, but it resonates with Australian history as well, which is these hidden stories that, I mean, I'd never heard of that. Colson mm. Whitehead had not heard of this thing before he saw the story in the, in the uh, Tampa Bay Times. Um, there's all these hidden aspects of history that they're so unpalatable and so hideous that even when you hear about them, you just want to unhear about it straight yeah, away and sweep yeah. it under the carpet. And so he's he's fictionalised this story to tell this story um, and it forces you to basically look at to engage square yeah. in the face. So it's it's not an easy read. It's a pretty hard read. It's pretty brutal and there's a lot of violence. Um, but it is, you're reading it going, wow, this, you know, actually happened and it only, the place was only shut in 2011. Like that's not even a decade ago. Unbelievable. It's not ancient history. It's like contemporary history. So it's and it's a, he's a great writer. It's a fine um, piece of work. Uh, so I've been reading that. It it's made me think a little bit about another book I'm reading at the same time for work, which is Richard Flanagan's new novel, which oh, is about yeah. to come out. Okay, it's called The Living Sea of Waking Dreams. Um, I don't say this lightly. I think it's a masterpiece. I think wow. it's okay. I mean, I haven't read everything that Richard Flanagan's written, um, but I. I mean, he won the Booker Prize for his not his not his last novel, the one yep. before, um, the Narrow Road to the Deep South. Yeah, he loves north, a complicated deep north. Deep north sorry, yeah. <laughs> um, loves a complicated title, doesn't he? Yeah, he the does. Old plan. Um, it 
it packs so many punches. I'm having to read it fairly quickly because I've got to interview him. And so, you know, you and I often talk that we read too quickly. Yeah. I, I have this desperate sense as I'm reading it that like, oh, God, I want to just sit You're here wasting and ponder it. Yeah. that. Yeah, I'm wasting You're it. I'll, I'll have it, to reread the, uh, it. As Boris Johnson would say. I'll have to reread it because things just punch me in the guts and then I just quickly move on because I need to keep going. It's the core of it is it's about um, a woman who is an elderly woman who's sort of slowly dying and her children who are attending her sort of deathbed and how she's she's unwell and then she's sort of they think oh she'll go to rehab and then you know she has a setback and so it's that kind of a situation up and down all the time. Her daughter's name's Anna um, and I'm not spoiling anything because this is this again a bit of magic realism. I guess is revealed early on that Anna notices as she's caring for her mother that oh one of my fingers has gone missing, and then um, you're sort of left to think what's going on here? Has she got some form of dementia or what's going on? And then it's against the backdrop the, the mother and the family story is against the backdrop of um, just the sort of horror and scariness of the world around. So Flanagan's obviously written some of it in the aftermath of the bushfires mm-hmm. um, in Australia late mm-hmm. last year and early this year. He's talking about extinction and um, just the awfulness of the world around. And Anna sometimes will do things like she'll see something about the bushfires, like the the town that was gathered mm. on the beach and going to be told to get mm. into the water with the siren, and then she'll just like look at her Instagram and post something on Instagram to sort of get away right. from it. Um, so it's sort of, I guess, about um, death and decay and extinction on a micro level with the family and the mm. mother, but, but also this woman who's sensing parts of herself vanishing, but then also with the planet, you know, things that are changing and vanishing. It's it's blowing my mind <laughs> to the degree that I feel like I just can't speak to Richard Flanagan ever again because it's so good. I just feel so intimidated by how good it is and I just – And yet you have to interview him. I do have to interview him and no I pressure. just want to be reading it. I just wish that I didn't have to be reading it with an eye to what am I going to ask him about because I just want to be reading it and immersing in it and studying how brilliant it is. It's really, wow, really good. Well, now I want to read that too. Yeah, I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. Um, and can I give a, a quick mention to one other very accomplished book, um, nonfiction, The Carbon Club by oh, Marion Wilkinson. Right. Have you read that? I haven't um, read yes. it yet. Yes. And it's so Marion Wilkinson is, um, some people will be familiar with her. She's a very trailblazing female Australian reporter who was the first female executive producer of Four Corners mm-hmm. uh, in the early 90s, I think, or was it late 80s? And then most recently she's been a reporter at the at um, Four Corners. She's been Washington correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, really accomplished reporter. So the Carbon Club is basically about how the tagline is how a network of influential climate sceptics, politicians and business leaders fought to control Australia's climate policy. And that's actually a really good tagline because that perfectly encapsulates mm. what it's about. So Marion's um, stock in trade is she is the most meticulous and forensic reporter. And so she's gone right back um, to, you know, sort of I guess from – it's it, it takes in so ninety seven Kyoto yeah but even earlier like ninety two was it Rio wow. it was Rio ninety two yeah, okay. so it sort of goes right back to give you the sort of genesis of when this and you know even in the eighties when this start, first started getting on the the hole in the ozone layer when this yeah. first started mm-hmm. getting on the radar and then it goes through in really meticulous detail how have we not really addressed this problem and why has it been derailed and what have been the bigger picture forces that have combined to ensure that we've never really had a sort of cohesive climate change policy um and it's just she just brings her her forensic attention to detail to it the 
the end notes, which have all the sources, is about a third of the size yeah, of the actual right. book. So if you're interested in climate change policy, this is really the definitive book because you could go to all of those um, resources as well and go all that primary material that Marion has meticulously done the labour in going through for you wow. and condensing into this book that, you know, it'll be the sort of go-to like, okay, I need to know what happened in 2001. You know, you'd be able to have a look at it. So I recommend that. There have been so many weird twists and turns in that time too. I remember like when Robert Hill, who was the then Environment Minister in the quite new Howard government, when he came home from Kyoto and had kind of scored this incredible deal for Australia where we could effectively yes. lift our emissions, I mean we got kind of the sweetest deal of the whole of Kyoto and he was being carried around, you know, on the shoulders of the government about, you know, what an amazing deal this was and how Kyoto was just this Aren't we still incredible... using some of those credits? <laughs> we're using credits yeah. from an old deal still to yep. meet our, um, I don't but know if Kyoto, but yeah. So it was like this triumph, but then it was never ratified, you know, by that government. So I don't know, it's just... There's, There's fascinating, um, yeah, it, it sort of moments, you know, and of course, you know, the Kevin Rudd moral challenge and yeah. then the, yeah. you know, all, all that. Um, it's really interesting. Two, just two other quick things before we run out of time. Yeah. Um, somebody recommended to me a series called Grey Zone on SBS On Demand. What's that? Uh, I didn't really love it, actually. It's about, I only watched a couple of episodes and then I gave up on it. Um, it is about a um, sort of nefarious terrorist kind of group that needs to infiltrate this tech company and so they get this woman um, who's a sort of scientific tech kind of expert and mm -hmm. they have her kid uh, held hostage and she has to try to do their bidding. Um, right. It's the girl who was the journalist in Borgen is the lead oh, in it. Oh, right, yeah. okay. Uh, and it's another sort of Scandi Noir thing. It just didn't grip me. So if you're looking for something, I'd, I don't recommend that. And I've switched from that. <laughs> Wow, you're murderously effective and efficient. I've switched to watching a thing called I Hate Susie on Stan, which oh. is Billy Piper. The right. premise is a sort of semi-successful actor, like not an A-grade actor, like a sort of, you know, B-grade actor, has had a sort of some photos hacked from her oh, phone okay. of her um, just engaged in sexual activity. Right. And it sort of goes from there basically in terms of the impact on her career and her marriage and stuff like oh. that. A couple of people that I know who've watched it have absolutely loved it and binged it compulsively. Who made it? Is it American? Uh, it's British. She's British, a British actress. Right. Um, and I've watched three episodes and I'm liking it but I'm not completely um, in love with it. But but I know other people who are really liking it. And I think my judgment at the moment is a little bit off because I'm finding it hard to concentrate in this mm. corona period. Mm -hmm. So there's been a few things that people whose judgment I trust, like say, for example, Shit's Creek, have told me to watch and then I find it hard to concentrate and get into it mm. and I think I can't tell if it's because my, you know, I've got so much mental load and so many things to think about and so I'm not able to concentrate very well or if it's because it doesn't, is it actually that it's not gripping me? I just, I can't tell. Yeah. Anyway, so I hate Susie. Lots of people have recommended it. It's okay. <laughs> I think. Back to Flanagan. Back yeah. to Flanagan. Back to Flan. Um, but I'm confident Flan's a plan. You have, um, you've given me, I'm taking this group book home and I'm getting oh, you'll be immediately. Be, you'll I can't be, you'll wait. be done with that by the end of the we weekend. We should do a group. We guess. should do a chatter group. No, we shouldn't. God, Absolutely that would just be a shocker. Not. You can run that. <laughs> See, champion. <laughs>